Hi, it's back. Welcome to episode 636 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, and after my last podcast, I never want to rhyme again. And if you find me rhyming sometimes, please punch me in the chin. Don't! In every episode of the Fantastic Forecast, I talk about a different issue of the Fantastic Four, starting with issue one and going all the way to issue 650? Today, it's Fantastic Four 636, a.k.a. Fantastic Four, Volume 6, Number 1, released in August 2018, Signal in the Sky, by writer Dan Slott and artist Sarah Picelli. Now, on the cover, there's a legacy number saying that this is issue 646 of the FF, which is not true. Fake news. Unless there's 10 issues of the Fantastic Four that I missed, this is issue 636, not 346. There's an interesting painted cover by Isad Ribic. Mr. Fantastic looks old. He's got a big beard, gray hair. Ben looks more human-like. Reminds me of the time Diablo made him look more human. And Sue and Johnny look fairly normal. I guess they've got new redesigned costumes, but that's kind of a thing whenever a new creative team takes over. And in this case, after being away for several years, totally understandable. So it's been a long, long time since the last episode. I just looked. That last episode was an hour and 43 minutes long. Hopefully I'll keep these episodes around 10 minutes or 15 minutes even though this is a double-sized issue, I'll still try not to waste too much time. The story starts with a splash page, just a photo of the four members of the team in civilian clothes with the two kids, Valeria and Franklin. You know, my, my biggest hope for this relaunch was that Valeria would never return, and already my hopes are dashed. Reed is on the first panel. He looks like Loki for some reason. Maybe it is Loki. That would be pretty great if he replaced Reed for a while, wouldn't it? We get some narration from the four members of the team talking about how can you describe the Fantastic Four. Johnny says they've been called superheroes, adventurers, imaginots, which Johnny points out that imaginot isn't even a real word. Reed, or is it Loki, says that they're a band of explorers, and Sue concludes they are adventurers and a family. Page two, we proceed to see what Ben and Johnny are up to on an ordinary Sunday. At this point, I think Ben and Johnny are back in the Marvel Universe, appearing in a Marvel 2-in-1 book, which probably explains what happened to the team after the last issue, and after the Secret Wars 3? Or is it Secret Wars 4? Anyway, Ben is shopping with Alicia, and they're buying some cats from some weird animal rescue lady on the street. Which, that seems like a weird place to sell animals. I've seen people selling all kinds of shit on the streets of New York, but never cats. Speaking of cats, I'm still having nightmares from seeing that Cats movie trailer. I can't decide what is more horrifying. A second Trump term, or Cats the movie. Next, we see Johnny at a Mets game. 
I guess they've given up on calling the New York baseball team by some fake name. Now they're just the real Mets. Johnny is at the game, singing Meet the Mets song, with Wyatt Wingfoot by his side, who he refers to as his roomie, which is kind of odd. Johnny is a millionaire, must be in his late 20s now, and still rooming with his old college roommate? Or is that, quote-unquote, college, college roommate? Well, that didn't take long. They put Johnny up on the Jumbotron, and it says, Welcome, Johnny Storm. Wyatt calls it the Celebrity Cam, and says if they switch it to the Kiss Cam, he ain't kissing Johnny. Wait, was that even an option? No one suggested that, but apparently it was on Wyatt's mind. Johnny is quickly surrounded by several other girls who would be willing Kiss recipients. Back with Ben and Alicia, we learn that she's never had a pet before. Now it seems like they're buying her four cats. Is Ben planning to dump Alicia because she is well on her way to becoming a cat lady? Just then, someone shot, shoots off a flare gun that is like not just a big flaming four in the sky, but the flare gun spells out the words Fantastic Four, which seems pretty impossible unless you have, unless you shoot off 12 different flares. Ben and Johnny both see this from their respective locations. Some lady seems very happy, and she's like, oh my god! Ben and Johnny seem confused. And then Johnny seems very happy. He tells Wyatt that duty calls and says, they're back! as he flames on and flies away. Isn't it kind of rude to just leave his friend there at the ballpark by himself? And by the way, are they still using flare guns as signal devices? Johnny and Ben don't have cell phones? That seems a little old-fashioned and very unreliable. They never seem to be indoors when they fire off those flares either. They always see them. Ben seems less than enthusiastic. It appears that he's not buying the cats, and he's heading, heading back, but Alicia wants to sit down and talk first. So they find a bench. Ben seems like he has uh, something to confess. Doesn't he always seem like he has something to confess? But he never does. Meanwhile, Johnny is flying through the city. People are cheering the return of the Fantastic Four. I don't know why. The presence of the Fantastic Four in the city attracts all kinds of bad guys in danger. But Johnny must be happy. The fame from the Fantastic Four really helps him get laid. Back on that park bench, Ben tells Alicia that Reed, Sue, and, Ki and the kids are gone for good. No way was it them who set off that flare. And when Johnny lands, we see a couple of Yancey Street kids on the rooftop, setting off what is surely a very advanced, costly set of flares. Johnny looks pretty mad. One kid says that he's worried that Johnny will burn them. The other kid says not to worry, he'll only put them in the negative zone or something. And that seems almost as bad as being burnt. And later, the prank by the Yancey Street Gang ends up on the news. That's an odd choice by Dan Slott, by the way, to start the issue. First eight pages with a prank that will most likely mean nothing for the rest of the story. I suppose the point was to tease the reader, trick the reader, and it worked on me. I thought it really was going to be read up on that building. Especially since they were using a very advanced flare gun that could spell out 12 different letters. Where did the Yancey Street Gang get that effin' flare gun? Back with the newscaster, this particular story is a good time for her to mention that this is the anniversary of the original flight into space 
and she gives a brief rundown of their origin. There's a flight to space, the cosmic rays, they land, they all have powers. Eh, pretty simple for a comic book origin story. So anyway, Channel 5 has gone out and tried to get interviews with surviving members of the Fantastic Four and their substitute members. Ben Grimm has no comment. Medusa... How the hell did they get... How the hell did Channel 5 track down Medusa? She says that she has faith in Sue Richards and that she and her family will return someday. They talk to Crystal, who says she's worried more about Ben and Johnny. Ben and Johnny? They're alive and well, going to baseball games and shopping for cats. They're just fine. I'd be worried about Reed and Sue, who are missing in space somewhere. Crystal is an idiot. And then they talk to Power Man, who was a member for what, two issues? He says it's made him determined to keep his family from this kind of life. Luke Cage has a family? I didn't know that. And finally they talk to Jennifer Walters, the She-Hulk, only here she's human again, with green eyes, and she says she's representing the Yancey Street Boys in court. For what? Shooting flares over the city? I assume that's probably not legal, but geez. I can't believe Johnny was like, I'm calling the cops and I'm pressing charges. Take those kids away and lock them up. That seems pretty harsh. Down at the courthouse, Jennifer Walters says pretty much the same thing when Johnny is there demanding that they be tried as adults. What an asshole. If this is going to be Dan Slott's version of Johnny Storm, I hate him already. Wyatt and Jennifer have a moment. Jen is like, you're looking good. And Wyatt replies, you too, Jen. How does he even recognize her? She's not the She-Hulk right now. And she doesn't even have brown hair in a human form. She looks nothing like any version of Jennifer Walters I've ever seen before. And then Jennifer reveals to Johnny that she was hired by Ben Grimm to represent the kids. And then back at some old man's apartment, no idea who this is, but on his walls, he's got these glass display boxes, boxes, like for a museum, and one has a broken glass with a label that says, Original Signal Flare, thus explaining where the kids got that flare from. But of course, the original flare didn't make the entire words Fantastic Four, did it? I guess I should go back and delete the part about me complaining, where did those kids get that flare from? They stole it from this guy! Oh, but I'm too lazy to do that. Now, a bigger question is, who is this old man, and why does he have these weird Fantastic Four relics on his wall? Ben finds some other old memento. It's some kind of box with a bunch of computer files. I guess it's like a very large external hard drive? Ben is going to pull up an old story, and he tells the old man it's an oldie, but a goodie. So of all these adventures, this is the one that Ben decides to share at this moment? It better be good. So we finally see Reed and Sue, in a flashback. They've made some kind of trip to space with their two kids. I remember the old days. Reed and Sue used to worry about putting Franklin in danger. And now, they just don't give a shit. They're always dragging Franklin and Valeria into dangerous situations. And here they're stranded in space. Lost. But they find this alien guy, Astronomica, Astronomica, and they're flying in some small spaceship, which is a convertible. You know, usually when flying in space, 
you want to put the top up. Astronomic. Astronomic. Astronomica? Has a staff, which she says will light their way home. But first, they have to power up the Stellarax stone in the Star Spectre. Sue asks how, and the alien says that the stone isn't powered by flames or strength, and invisibility and stretching won't help. But what they need is for someone to sing. Sing. Apparently, they need some kind of pitch-perfect sound wave to power up the stone. So they need the best singer. Sue says that that's her. Ben, Reed, Wyatt. Where did he come from? He wasn't in the group shot in the last panel on the previous page. The kids and Johnny himself all say that Johnny is the best singer. Too bad the she thing is no longer on the team. She could really belt out a tune. Sue is taken aback. Reed says she's a great singer. She says. But Franklin is like, Please, Mommy, don't sing. So the alien tells Johnny, Clear your mind. Open your heart. Think of where you want to be and sing. No pressure, right? A nervous Johnny replies. So he holds up the specter like a microphone and he starts to sing. Donkey Shane, darling Donkey Shane. What the hell? He's singing a Wayne Newton song from 1963. What kind of guy in his 20s would pick out of all the songs in the world that song? I don't even think that's the kind of song that Johnny Storm would have listened to back when he was a baby boomer. And definitely not, not now that he's a millennial. But it seems to work and the spaceship starts to speed off so fast that Alicia and Franklin fall off the side and Ben has to catch them. That's why spaceships normally have roofs. Or is it roofs? Soon, as Johnny continues to sing that awful song, they arrive at Earth and to New York City. So the flashback ends and we learn the point of the story. They still have that Stellarax stone, and he thinks he can use it to find Reed and Sue. So later, he heads off to Alicia's apartment, and we see that she's got a couple of cats. He knocks on the door and she answers, she opens the door, and Ben tells her that he's down on one knee. He's got flowers and an engagement ring. He asks, Alicia Masters, will you? Before he can finish, she blurts out, Yes! Curious, how much should you spend when you're buying an engagement ring for a blind person? I hope he didn't spend too much. I think she's excited to get married so she can move out of that crappy apartment building that has no security at the front door and someone could just walk in and knock on your door. Later, Ben and Alicia are eating, a, eating at a rooftop restaurant and they've called Johnny for some important news. He thinks it's about those kids who played a prank earlier, but nope. Ben tells Johnny that he's getting married to Alicia. At first, he seems happy, which is odd because in the real world, Johnny was married to Alicia like 30 years ago, but in comic book time, it was probably only a few years ago that Johnny was married to Alicia, or at least who he thought was Alicia. And isn't it weird that Johnny knows what Alicia looks like naked? Like, assuming the scroll was a perfect replica, he's probably a lot more familiar with Alicia's body than Ben is. When Ben asks Johnny to be his best man, Johnny says, no. He says, this is wrong. If anyone should be the best man at Ben's wedding, 
It should be Reed Richards. You know, in addition to Johnny having been married to an exact replica of Alicia, Reed is also married to a woman who looks exactly like Alicia. As you may recall, if you put a blonde wig on Alicia, she's practically a twin of Reed's wife, Sue. So this is all so very weird when you think about it. At this point, Johnny seems like he doesn't accept the fact that Reed and Sue are gone forever, but Ben does seem to accept it. Which doesn't make sense. I mean, what's the point of that scene earlier where Ben is getting that Stellarex stone if he wasn't planning to use it to find Reed and Sue? That's what I thought he was doing. At this point, Johnny flames on, flies off, he screams a little, asks for a sign, and no sign is forthcoming. And then he lands back on the roof, he hugs Alicia and Ben, and he's like, they're really gone, aren't they? But then, just then, in one of, the, one of those amazing coincidences that only seem to happen in comic books, we see Reed and Sue, with Reed working on some contraption that he activates back in New York City, everyone notices a big, giant blue four appearing, like, in orbit over Earth. It's, like, huge. And Johnny's like, it's about time. And that is the end of the first story, <clears throat> which brings us to the backup story, which appears to be about Dr. Doom, who, if I recall, had drastically changed in that Secret Wars miniseries. I'm not sure if he's made any other Marvel Universe appearances since then. I think he has, but eh, I don't know. I actually like read almost no Marvel comics. This story is titled Our Day of Doom and Victory by Dan Slott and Simone Bianchi. We see the city of Doomstadt, the capital of Latveria. It's nighttime. An announcer comes over the town's PA system telling them that the newly elected president for life, by the way, how horrible would that be? Voting for the president for life. And you thought elections in the United States were awful. Can you imagine if you had to vote for a president for life and your options were the same shit options we usually get? So the newly elected president for life says there are curfews in effect. Stay inside. Don't go out at night. Oh, that would suck too. I like to go to the gym at 10 p.m., the grocery store at 12 a.m., grinder hookups at 2 a.m. Okay, the, the curfew would really drag me down. We see that the streets of Doomstadt are filled with Doombots and military people and tanks. It's like a wet dream for Donald Trump. He'd love to have Trump bots, by the way. And we see this mysterious black woman, which is unusual because I've never seen black people in Latveria before. If there's any country I can picture with a white nationalist movement, it would be Latveria. So we see her sneaking into Castle Doom, and she goes sneaking around. There's some photos on the wall that she seems interested in. At first, I think she might be an art thief, but then Dr. Doom shows up behind her saying, intruder, who would dare invade the sanctity of Doom's house? And then more Dr. Dooms show up all saying, destroy her, destroy her, destroy her. They're all robots, of course. She says she wants to see their master, adding, the lives of all his loyal subjects depend on it. The robots all freak out, 
they all they're all deactivated and fall over. She turns to see the real Doctor Doom standing there, wearing nothing but a green cloth around his lower body, tied with a rope, no shirt, no mask, and his cape and hood, covering his face in shadow. He says he's heard enough. Leave this place, he says. She replies that she's Zora Vokalvik, proud daughter of Doomstock. She says that she's prayed for his return, and that Latveria needs a savior. Doom says he's been a god, been a hero, and was paid handsomely for it. I'm not sure what that's all about. Here, I'll show you. This should put an end to it, he says, as he pulls back his hood. Tell me, woman, is this the face of a savior? So he shows her his scarred up face, but we don't see it even though we did see it the last Secret Wars series. I still can't figure out why he had such bad teeth and a missing nose. He doesn't floss? He had a coke problem in the 80s? She says that Latveria has endured dictators and strongmen. The people would welcome back Doom with any face. But she reaches in her bag, pulls out a metal mask of Doom. On her knees, she reaches up and hands it to him saying that what the people need to see is his true face, implying that it's the mask. He says that people fear the mask, but the woman says that to the Latverians, it is the face of hope. Sometimes when you have a bad leader, even Dr. Doom starts to look good. Hell, I'd vote for Dr. Doom in 2020. He thinks the woman, he thanks the woman, puts on the mask, and says that this is the face he chooses. He gets on the PA system. I think I think the idea of Doctor Doom making morning announcements over a PA system like a high school principal is pretty funny. Why doesn't he make his crazy pronouncements over Twitter? Like a real tin pot dictator. We learn that the girl is the daughter of the leader of the resistance. And I guess she's resisting the forces that took over in Doom's absence. We see a military group surrounding her and some other members of the so-called resistance. She says that she's not alone. Doom shows up, turns off the Doom bots that, that were working for the other side, and it looks like he's going to kick everybody's ass from the rest of the military force, saying, Watch me free them all from this tyranny by the strength of my will and by my hand alone. And he's flying over them. Hands are glowing with energy. He's not wearing shoes, which is very strange. This <laughs> Or a shirt. Let's just hope he doesn't have to go out to eat <laughs> for lunch because no shirt, no shoes, no service. And that is the end of issue number one. The Fantastic Four are back together. Well, okay, they're not really back together. They even included a comic strip at the end of the issue with the Impossible Man reading this issue and his head is just about to explode literally over the fact that the FF did not reunite in this issue even though a letter delivered by Willie Lumpkin tells him that the FF will reunite next issue? What a strange, this whole this comic strip is really a strange thing to include at the end of this issue. And so, anyway, speaking of this issue, overall, it's a decent issue. On a scale of 1 to 4, I give it a 2.5. Fairly middle of the road. I have the second issue, but I haven't, like, eagerly gone in to read it 
because I just can't wait. Okay, so in this issue, first, we had a prank that took up a significant amount of this issue. Meh. I'm not sure why Johnny was so upset by this. But Ben was like, oh well. Then we had the flashback to the Fantastic Four getting that magic stone that helps them find the way back to Earth. Ben ends up getting the stone in the present, and I assume he's going to use that next issue to actually find Reed and Sue. So at least that's kind of an, an important part of the issue to explain where that stone came from. Finally, the most important business of all, Ben proposing to Alicia. I'm not sure what's gone on with the thing where he finally thinks he's worthy to be Alicia's husband. And what is going on with Alicia where she's willing to be the bride of a rock monster? I mean, really. She can, she can do better. I assume she's aware that Johnny once married her doppelganger. And Johnny's a hot guy. So put two and two together, Alicia could land a hot guy if she wanted to instead of a rock monster. I'll never understand that character. And I'm not crazy about the idea of Ben and Alicia getting married. Frankly, after all these years, I'm crushingly bored of the, by the Alicia character. I was perfectly happy when Alicia would disappear from the book for years at a time. I did not miss her. By the way, you have to imagine that over the years, many, many writers have pitched the idea of getting Ben and Alicia married. And I suppose it was shot down every time. It seems like one of those ideas that a writer might come up with after he's been on the book for a few years and is running out of other ideas. But here, Dan Slott is kicking off his entire run with that idea. It's only the first issue and he's already scraping the bottom of the barrel and using the most obvious idea possible. Just imagine Dan Slott pitching his run to the editors at Marvel. Look. First issue, Ben proposes to Alicia, and she says yes, they're getting married. And the editors are like, wow, what a great idea. We've never heard that before. You've got the job, Dan. So now we're going to talk about the backup story, which is the return of Doctor Doom, which I think did a fairly good job of filling us in on the events of the past few years. A new regime has taken over Latveria. Doctor Doom has returned after doing whatever he was doing, being a god, being a hero. I don't know exactly. I don't I don't really uh read a lot of Marvel comics. It is weird seeing him bare-chested without shoes, but wearing his mask and cloak as usual. It's a pretty good look. He should keep it. Now, I was thinking that maybe what I can do. I was thinking about all the other Fantastic Four first issues for volumes one through six. And I was thinking maybe I should rank them all six of the first issues. So that's what I'm gonna do. And number six, easily by far the worst of all the first issues is the first issue of volume two, the Jim Lee Heroes Reborn issue, which is just a retelling of issue one of volume one. Very pretty art. But man, that is so lame and so pointless. I can't recall if I ever did a ranking of the various runs on the Fantastic Four. If I did, this run probably came in dead last. So number five, it's issue one of volume four, the Matt Fraction and Mark Bag Bagley relaunch. 
The Fantastic Four are still in their white uniforms, still surrounded by a bunch of extra characters, all the children living in the Baxter building. This really does pick up from the Jonathan Hickman run and continues with it. More of the Future Foundation stuff. This doesn't even feel like a relaunch. It is easily the most unnecessary renumbering on the entire list. And it even ends with a to-be-continued in FF1, which is the spinoff book that was relaunching at the same time. Like, what a shitty way to relaunch your book with a crossover to another book. So yeah, that's probably another another bad one. Number four is issue one of volume six. This issue right here. Like I said, fairly average. It's not terrible, but it lands right here in the kind of the, in the middle of the list. Number three is issue one of volume five. The FF sports some majorly ugly red uniforms. But overall, this issue is intriguing. It starts with some flash forwards that show the FF in some very uncomfortable situations in the future. A lot of stuff happens in this issue. It feels pretty big. Even at 22 pages, it feels like a lot of stuff happens and some important shit is about to happen. I've only read this issue once before when I did the podcast on it, but flipping through it now, it kind of makes me want to reread it. Number two, it's issue one of volume three. Alan Davis art. Oh, I was so excited for this relaunch. Did I mention Alan, especially after Heroes Were Born, did I mention Alan Davis art? It's a double-sized issue. The real FF are back. A lot of stuff happens in this issue. Got great art. Oh, I was so disappointed that Alan Davis only left, only lasted three issues. But I was really excited about this issue. It's still a fun one to read. And number one, of course, is the first issue of volume one. I think one of the best first issues of any comic ever. You get the origin of the Fantastic Four in the first half, the entire first meeting with Mole Man in the second half. There's monsters and adventure. For the first time ever, you have superheroes acting and talking like real three-dimensional human beings. It's a Stanley Jack Kirby classic. And so our winner is issue one of volume one. And that's all for now. If you have any questions about the Fantastic Four, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. You can download other episodes of iTunes and find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. My other podcast is Comic Book Menace, now dead, which which can be found at podomatic.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. Fake young when we met, everything seemed alright. A children sing on the sidewalk, cut straight through moonlight. I love those days we didn't get out of bed. Oh, left your taste in my mouth, your strange voice in my